Rainy Wednesday here in the New York metropolitan area. This is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. Plenty of stuff going on. I believe uh, the first debate, the, the quote, lower tier Republican debate, uh, may already be underway. But uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. We'll talk about the top tier uh, Republican debate a little later on as well. I'm sure many of you, if not most of you, have had the opportunity, if you have a computer, to see the video of a white police officer in South Carolina dragging a student out of her chair, actually flipping her over out of her chair, dragging her across the floor and putting her in handcuffs. That police officer, Ben Fields, has been fired. Um, Whether or not people think that's good enough, we shall see because it's entirely possible since the Justice Department has opened an investigation that he could be possibly liable for criminal charges. He could be charged criminally. Some people think, and I've been doing a little scouring about this uh, over the last little while, some people think he ought to be charged with assault. I would ask people the following question. Let us say, instead of a police officer, uh, Ben Fields, who, by the way, uh, people apparently want to mitigate the impact of race on this by saying he's got a black girlfriend. Isn't that wonderful? And where have we heard that before? Well, never mind. I'll leave that alone for now. Um, Imagine what would have happened if there had been a video taken of a parent dragging their child across the floor, literally, physically attacking a child, dragging a child across the floor, at the very least, I would think, Child Protective Services or some equivalent, depending on what state you're in or what city you're in, would have been called. And it's entirely possible the parent in that case might well have been charged with some form of assault, misconduct, endangering the welfare of a minor, something. Because this child was 16 years old. Apparently, the beef started when the teacher in the class she was in demanded that she turn over her cell phone. Now, what's interesting about this is she obviously could not have been the only person in the class that had a cell phone because somebody with a cell phone took the video of her being beat down. So if it's a matter of no one having cell phones, that seems a little shaky to start with. Now, maybe she was using it in class and other people were not. That's a possibility. But whatever her sin, real or imagined, and even refusing to get up when the teacher told her to get up and leave, none of that. I emphasize none of that justifies what was done to this child. And by the way, what was done to the other students in that class who witnessed what was done to this child? This guy apparently is like some 300-pound football coach or whatever. I don't know. And to an extent, I don't really care. There are uh, stories in the media that say some people – Don't think he's a bad guy and, you know, he's a nice person and blah, 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 blah. But to me, none of that matters. What matters is what we see on the videotape. There are some people who argue that she fought with the cop. Well, maybe so. The cop put some parents, and I was one of them when my kids were young. Some parents tell their children, never let a stranger 
put their hands on you. That was a problem for my son when he was growing up because a teacher grabbed him for some reason and he reacted really, really badly. And of course, I got called to the school and I told the teacher and the principal at the time, I taught my son not to let anybody put their hands on him. And I stand by, I'm not going to take that back. I think he might have got suspended or whatever. But there are plenty of parents, and I'm sure some of you who are listening have told your children, don't let anybody put their hands on you. Okay, and, and that's for safety. And this guy purported to be a safety officer. And the other interesting part of this is that kids in that same classroom described the young lady that was attacked and emphasized, I'm not fudging on that one bit, the young lady that was attacked as being a very quiet student, very quiet, very docile student. (coughs) So why did Ben Fields find it necessary to use the amount of force he used? If you look at the video, he flipped this girl upside down, flipped her in her desk chair. What had happened if she had landed on her head? And again, what would have happened to any parent who used that level of force on a child and it was recorded and turned over to authorities? The facts are clear. I believe Ben Fields ought to be, I mean, he's rightfully fired, but he ought to face some level of criminal charge for doing this. This is not how, and, and, you know, he was fired because the sheriff in this particular uh, county, Richland County, South Carolina, Sheriff Leon Lott says, well, he wasn't following proper training or procedure. Now, last night I had a chance to talk to someone who knows an awful lot about police training and procedure because he was chief of patrol here in New York City for a period of time, and he was also in charge of training here. And he said, look, if this was not proper training, and this was before Fields had been fired, he said the officer has to be disciplined for this. This was not, given what was on the video, not proper training. And then, of course, there's the question, and this is a question that should come up, You know, a lot of people, oh, no, you don't want to bring that up. The question of race and discipline in American schools is one that has to be thoroughly discussed and thoroughly vetted. That's not to say that if children, whether they be black, white, or sky blue, green, if they are disruptive, they have to be disciplined for it. That's how you instill some form of academic and disciplinary rigor in the classroom. I have no problem with that. But if it turns out, and in this case, Spring at Spring Valley High School, there was a disproportionate number and a disproportionate percentage of black children who were suspended versus all suspensions. 77% of the children suspended were black. 59% of the student body is black. That's better than a 10% difference. That's way beyond any margin of error if you were doing polling. The fact is the, it ought to be examined. I can't come to conclusion. I'm not an educator, and I don't have all the numbers. But I would say this incident is symbolic of the need to examine how discipline is administered. And if it turns out that discipline is administered disproportionately based on race across America, then something has to be done to change it. And again, that's not to say that you don't discipline children who violate school standards, school rules, school regulations. That's not the point. The point is, if you got one standard for black kids and a different standard for white kids, you got a problem. And something needs desperately 
needs to be done about that. Now, you know, uh, Richland County in South Carolina has a school board that now is predominantly black. But you see, it's not as easy to say, well, you got a predominantly black school board. These things shouldn't happen. You have people who overreact. You have people who think they're dealing with adult criminals. This child, whether or not she fought back against a police officer, did not pose a threat. A 300-pound guy and a 16-year-old kid poses a threat? That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Now, we'll see whether or not it turns out to be criminal. Justice Department is taking a look at this. I hope they take a long and thorough look at this, and when they're done investigating, act accordingly. Now, the other part is this, uh, uh, apparently a second kid in that classroom, Naya Kenny, who's 18 years old, was detained, which means she got busted, because she interceded, not physically. She said she protested. And as she protested, Ben Fields said to her, since you've got so much to say, you're coming too. And apparently, both the 16-year-old and this 18-year-old kid, Nia Kelly, are going to be facing charges. I would think that the charges would summarily be dropped. As the altercation occurred, according to published reports, the students were standing up trying to figure out what was going on. And the deputy said, sit down or you're going to be next. What would have happened had this situation escalated? It needs to be examined. If it turns out that criminal charges are warranted, then Ben Fields ought to be charged. He shouldn't just be fired. He should be charged if the circumstances warranted. The way it looks now and the way it looks from this videotape, you're talking quite possibly. And again, I go back to the question of whether or not a parent might not be criminally charged if they were videotaped doing to their child what this man did to this child. Closer to home, New York City held a funeral for a police officer, Randolph Holder, who was killed, allegedly by a young man named Tyrone Howard. And now, his life and how he managed through any number of means to escape punishment for crimes he allegedly committed is starting to, starting to draw some scrutiny, and rightly so. Apparently, the man had a crack problem, had a PCP problem, PCP, last I checked, is angel dust, which is one of the most unpredictable drugs known to mankind. He was a dealer who found, and I'm not, I'm not sure exactly what he was dealing, but he was dealing, and people were encroaching on his turf, and he was involved in several shootouts prior to the one that took Officer Holder's life. And now people are saying, oh, my God, how could he have been in the street, et cetera, et cetera. What this does do, and I think it's important, is raise a question. And I'm a questioning person. I'm sorry. That's just my nature. When and how do you decide whether a criminal deserves a second chance? And when does a lock them up mentality which has arguably been part and parcel of law enforcement in this country for the last little while, when does that lock them up mentality become mass incarceration? And there are people who are rightly railing against mass incarceration. You had the president of the United States speaking out about mass incarceration. But Tyrone Howard appears to be somebody who for the better part of 20 years, his rap sheet started when he was 13. 13 years of age. And he spent the better part of almost 20 years winding his way through the criminal justice system. 
And he had chances. He had a, a, a he was allowed to enter a youthful offender program after being convicted of armed robbery. He had a prison sentence curtailed because he offered prosecutors help on a different case. And his criminal history would seem to make him the poster child for getting and staying locked up. I mean, that's what it would appear on its face. Yet he wasn't locked up. And there's a larger question here, a much, much larger question here. And we touched on it a bit last week. Tyrone Howard and many of the people he interacted with and was friendly with seemed to roam the East River houses in East Harlem at will, with firearms, at will, shooting it out with and against each other, at will. Now, aside from where the guns come from, and now we know that the gun that was used to kill Randolph Holder came to New York through the Iron Pipeline and was, and this is an irony, that gun was originally purchased by a state trooper. Not here in New York, out of town. They say about 90% of the guns that they find in New York are from out of town. We don't, we don't make that many guns here in New York City. But the larger question of how and why drugs and guns seem to run rampant in certain places. And I'm not going to say it's all public housing. But in this case, it was public housing. How does that happen? Why is that tolerated? Not by the residents. The residents, are uh, overwhelming majority of them are law-abiding people. They don't hold parades in the East River houses for drug dealers. They want to see these people out of their community as well. Most of them, unless they're family or close friends. Because, as, uh, as I said last week, if somebody would shoot a cop, they'd shoot you or me or anybody else in a minute if they were being chased by somebody. Now, I'm sure when the time comes, Tyrone Howard's lawyer, whoever his lawyer ends up being, is going to say, well, he, he feared for his life because he was being chased by people after a shootout, and he just turned around and shot the first person that he saw, the closest person to him, and it turned out it was a police officer. I'd be willing to bet money. That's how he's going to approach this. But the circumstances around which he stayed out of the joint and the circumstances around which he was able to roam freely, he and others able to roam freely in the East River houses is one, again, that has to be questioned. Now, I'm going to be real specific about where the gun came from because I'm a big, big proponent of letting folk know where these guns come from. The weapon that killed Holder was purchased by Roderick Hughes from a store in Columbia, South Carolina, Lawman's Safety Supply. It was reported stolen from a law enforcement officer in Marion, South Carolina in 2011. That officer is not named. But Hughes, Roderick Hughes, who bought the gun in the first place, is a state trooper. So a gun bought by a lawman is used to kill another lawman. That's the deadly and ugly symmetry that we're talking about here. Now, when it comes to the so-called iron pipeline, which is the pipeline by which guns are purchased in the South, whether it be through straw buyers or whatever, and, or whether through legitimate sources, like a cop, a state trooper. And then it gets stolen from somebody else. And then what ends up happening is that these guns are driven from the South, usually up I-95, straight to New York, where you can make a tidy, tidy profit selling them. 
to the Tyrone Howards of the world and some of the other people in East River houses. I can guarantee you, if you went up there, if you got to know people up there and you one day came to somebody and said, hey, man, I need some protection, they'd, find, they'd point you towards some place where you could buy a gun. And this iron, I've been talking about the iron pipeline for 20 some odd years. This is not new. Law enforcement knows that that's how a lot of these guns get up here. Now, 74 guns, including pistols, revolvers, rifles, and at least one sawed-off shotgun, were interdicted by the NYPD from a gang of traffickers smuggled from South Carolina. Fortunately, the NYPD set up a sting operation, and good for them for doing so. And these traffickers were selling to undercover cops. So sting operation lasted almost a year, and they got 75 guns off the street. Now, you multiply 75 or uh, 75, 74 guns times the death and destruction those guns can cause in the wrong hands, you realize that these police officers, who, by the way, put themselves at risk going undercover to do this, you understand the danger that the iron pipeline presents. Because if there's 74 guns the cops stopped, how many guns got here and were successfully sold that they didn't bust? Now, in my conversation last night with retired Chief of Patrol Wilbur Chapman, he said, I know a lot of people may disagree with him, but he said that stop and frisk done properly was a legitimate way to get guns off the street. Now, statistically, stop and frisk doesn't get, didn't get that many guns off the street when the number of stops were at their apex a few years back. But the bottom line is, and I, you know, it's very difficult to identify a gun smuggler who's, you know, it's not like uh, some places down south where they, you know, have their guns in plain sight. Gun smugglers don't put their guns in the back seats of their cars. It's not that easy to spot or to stop a gun smuggler. I'm not saying it's easy, but it's necessary. It is absolutely necessary. And sooner or later, folks are going to realize that having these firearms in the hands of punks and criminals is unacceptable and intolerable. And it must, at some point, stop. Now, I'm going to shift gears just a bit, talk about a different story. You can call me at 1-888-874-4888. You can talk about whatever's on your mind. Maybe, maybe the debate's on your mind. It's not really on mine all that much. But uh, we'll, we'll get into that. A little bit, a little bit later on. Because I really find these issues to be of paramount importance. You know, policing in the schools. There was a time, you know, there was no policing in the schools. Cops came to the school either to make a presentation to a bunch of kids or in the case of an extreme emergency. That's when cops get, you know, I'm not a kid. But we didn't see cops in our schools. This guy was a uniformed school safety officer, Ben Fields, who's now out of the gig. But anyway, I want to talk about something else having to do with school. Headline, nationwide test shows dip in students' math abilities. Now, I know that many of you and many people in New York and surrounding communities are quite concerned about the efficacy of testing. That's another thing we didn't have all that much of when I was young. We had tests. You know, our teachers gave us tests. And we passed or failed based on our knowledge of the information. But when teachers gave tests, you could be absolutely certain 
that the material they tested you on had been covered in the classroom. Now, apparently, not so much. For the first time since 1990, math skills have dropped. And this is not just in New York. This is in America. This was a nationwide test. Results were get released by the Education Department today. The decline was in both grades four and eight. It's an exam that's administered every two years. It's the nation's report card. That's how they call it. Now, this is not coming at a great time because employers, although they don't hire fourth and eighth graders, but employers are demanding workers with skills in math in order to compete in the global economy. And there are a lot of jobs out here, a lot of jobs. If you're skilled at math, you can get hired. But it's a problem. If kids are not actually being able to increase, never mind stay the same, but to increase their scores in math. Now, we could argue for the rest of this program about whether or not kids ought to be uh, tested as often as they are. I'm one who doesn't believe they don't. They have to be tested as often. And a lot of these are state standardized tests or this standardized test or the federal government test. At some point, you might end up getting tested out, okay? Uh, I just think that, you know, and a lot of this, a lot of the back and forth, the Sturm and Drang, as it were, has to do with Common Core, which I tend to favor. You know, I, I believe there ought to be a minimum level of standards for children to attain as they acquire their education. There's nothing wrong with standards. Nothing. I don't think you have to be tested on them every two weeks. But I believe that standards are good. But in order for those standards to have any meaning whatsoever, especially nationally, children have to be taught the material that they will see on tests. There's no good to have a common core if kids aren't actually learning the material that would allow them to not just do well, but to excel in the common core. Unless they have parents who, you know, maybe mathematicians or whatever. Because, you know, some parents, and this is something that's uh, going on for a long time, unbeknownst to a lot of folks. There are a lot of parents here of all races, I might add, who do not leave the education of their children solely to the schools. And I'm not talking about homeschooling now. I am talking about following children's homework, not doing it for them, but knowing what their children are learning. And at certain points, testing them on what they're supposed to know. You know, if you start that when a kid is young, second, third grade, whatever, you can do that right, right through high school without necessarily having to be a math genius or a reading savant or whatever. But if you know what your child is supposed to be learning, you can then ascertain whether or not the school your child is attending is doing a good job at teaching your children. And a lot of parents don't leave it to the schools. And this, by the way, transcends the whole public school, charter school argument. Because I just saw a commercial for charter schools on TV earlier today. And this was from charter school teachers. It's not about charter schools or public schools. It is about education. It's about academic rigor. It's about seeing to it that if you're going to have common core, if you're going to have a set of academic standards that everyone has an equal chance to meet them. And I would submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that the way things are right now doesn't happen. Does not happen. 
Some schools do an excellent job. Some schools stink at it. And that's the challenge. If you're going to have Common Core, let's make sure our kids have the skills and the ability to master it. Our kids aren't stupid. They're no dumbers. Many of them are a lot smarter than I was. How about we treat them that way? How about we equip them that way? It's 29 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. You can call me, 1-888-874-4888. When we come back, do we have a budget deal or don't we? Don't ask Rand Paul. He's probably preparing for the debate tonight. He's, you know, going to come up with whatever he's going to come up with. Donald Trump and Humble Pie, those two terms supposed to be mutually exclusive. A newspaper in Florida says Marco Rubio ought to quit for missing Senate votes. And the pay gap between CEOs and the workers that they supervise or laud over, it's not just while you're working. I'll tell you a little bit about what happens when CEOs and regular workers retire. But stay with us. This is the Mark Riley Show, heard weekly on the Progressive Radio Network. We're back 27 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the Republican debate is taking place at the University of Colorado Boulder. My daughter happens to attend the University of Colorado Boulder. And, I, you know, I don't like to present anecdotal evidence as fact, but some of the stuff she's uh, texting my wife about what's going on out there is utterly amazing. Now, I don't know whether this is just rumor, fact, fiction, or whatever, but if some of the stuff, if half the stuff she's telling my wife is true, these folks are just, they, they're just beyond whatever, uh, over the top. And, again, I'm not going to go into great detail because I, I, I'm not absolutely certain. One thing I am sure of, though, is that they did not, now, now the... Uh, place, the arena where they're holding the debate, (coughs) excuse me, the core center, holds about 11,000 people. Take a wild guess how many students will be in that 11,000-seat arena tonight. Take a wild guess. Now, mind you, the University of Colorado has some 38,000 students. So what do you think, 1,000 maybe, 2,000? Try 50. That's right. 50. Five, zero. That's for students, faculty, and staff. 50 seats. Which means, essentially, by the way, that this is not a a debate that will be uh, framed in the place where it's taking place. It's not going to be framed, and maybe it shouldn't be. I mean, 
Boulder is not exactly a hotbed of Republicanism, certainly not a hotbed of the Republican base that supports the Donald Trumps and the Ben Carsons of the world. Absolutely not. But uh, you'd think more than 50? 50? That's insane. That's absolutely, and the students earlier this week, apparently as late as yesterday, being told to lock their doors and stay in their rooms till the thing is over. <laughs> you know, you don't want to get out on campus and disrupt anything. Um, I, you know, it, it's almost like the Cirque de GOP. You know, uh, it, it, it's now we have Ben Carson, who, by the way, is uh, a, when I hear his name, the first two things I think of are slavery and the Holocaust, because he will compare almost anything to one or the other. Abortion is this. Medicare is that. This is like this. This is welfare. Slavery. He uh, goes off the deep end. Sometimes I wonder if he doesn't get away with this stuff, specifically because he's a black guy. You know, there's nothing quite like a black guy to talk about slavery. I'm telling you, and I hate to be cynical about this, but what the heck I am. Uh, And he's actually pulling out in front of Donald Trump, particularly in Iowa, where he's apparently got a big lead, which led Trump to go to Iowa the other day and eat humble pie and say, please, 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 in his best James Brown imitation, vote for me when those caucuses come up and then reminded the crowd. And this is, I don't know how he manages to pull this off. Reminds the crowd that the last two Iowa caucuses did not produce the presidential candidate of the Republican party. So, you know, that would lead me to say, well, then what do you care whether they vote for you? What he cares about is the polling. Donald Trump, doesn't want to see polling, doesn't want to hear about polling, where he's not number one. And, you know, he uh, when the first polling showing him at number two started to come out, he said, well, that's unscientific. He's even had to back off of that. That's where Donald Trump is these days. And for the rest of I mean, I will give this, okay? Uh, John Kasich, who essentially jumped up and said, what? <laughs> What is going on here with you people? I give him credit. And I know some people who think Kasich might make the best Republican candidate. I don't know what his polling is doing. And sometimes, you know, polling is not the most scientific or accurate way of looking at who's where or who's going to end up being the nominee. You know, polling in the fall of 2015 doesn't make a Republican nominee in 2016. It just doesn't. So maybe Kasich will rise Phoenix-like above the crowd. But right now, the Republic I don't think that will happen for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that the Republican primaries tend to turn out the most conservative voters, including large numbers of evangelicals, which is where Ben Carson is getting his strength. The evangelicals apparently find Donald Trump just a bit too bombastic, as it were. And they find Ben Carson's soft demeanor and manner, which Trump, by the way, ridiculed before, in addition to questioning his Seventh-day Adventist faith, but found that to be, you know, a sign of weakness. Anybody that's not Donald Trump is a loser and they're weak. That's what he's been coming up with up until now. I don't know if he does that again tonight in the debate. Maybe he will. But I think maybe he's starting to think that that bombast is not serving him as well as it has. You know, people get tired of hearing the same crap day after day after day. And despite the fact he apparently has a pretty loyal base, it may be at a point where his style is bringing diminishing returns. I, I, for one, hope he keeps on. <laughs> I hope he keeps on doing exactly what he's doing. I've said before, and I'll say again, I don't think he lasts through the primaries. 
I think he's going to look for an opportunity, declare victory, and get out, because I never thought he was serious about being president in the first place. So it's a wonderful idea, and I'm sure in his heart of hearts he'd love to, at a certain level, be president. But I don't think it's something that he necessarily has his heart in. I think he has his heart in building his brand. Ben Carson? Ben Carson is the beneficiary of a couple of things. One, his outsized conservatism appeals mightily to evangelicals. They love him. And the other part of it is, like Donald Trump, he's an outsider. And a lot of the, quote, conservative base is if they're not mad about anything else, they seem to be mad about everything, but if they're not mad about anything else, they're mad about government. They don't like the government. They don't like the way things are done. So anybody that comes out as anti-government and who hasn't been a part of government, they're down. And Ben Carson is one who has not. He's a neurosurgeon. He's never held elected office, maybe a school board or something, but he's never held elected office. So he comes across as the new wonder. And the people that Trump's folks who are tired of listening to him will vote for. But there are other subtexts here. There's the sinking ship that appears to be Jeb Bush's candidacy. And if Jeb Bush is going to get feisty and combative with anybody, it's not going to be Trump or Carson. It's going to be Marco Rubio, his fellow Floridian who, by the way, the uh, Florida Sun Sentinel in an editorial said he ought to resign from the Senate because he's missed so many votes. And he, you know, he was the guy who jumped up and said that federal workers who aren't present or aren't doing their jobs ought to be fired. Well, he didn't have the temerity to say, well, you know what? That applies to me, too. I quit. But now one newspaper says he should quit. And Guarantee well, I'm not going to guarantee anything, but I, my guess is Jeb Bush is going to bring that up since I'm sure he reads the Florida papers because that's where he's from. So you have a lot of subtexts here. What will Carly Fiorina do this time around? She's in with the heavy hitters. Why Chris Christie is among the heavy hitters is utterly beyond. I was looking and looking earlier today think, thinking Christie must be one, has to be one of the four that didn't make the cut. But he did. And as long as the polling deludes him into thinking he's got a shot at being president, I guess he will be a part of this. I think sooner or later, though, Chris is going to run out of money. I don't know that his, you know, he he's bombastic but different than Donald Trump in that he is, in fact, a sitting elected official, which means that the evangelical base doesn't trust him. They can't. He's a politician. He's part of government. And, you know, his protestations to the contrary, that is not a formula for success in the early primary states. It's just not. And Carson, I don't know how many of you noticed, Carson actually uh, won the last poll. The New York Times CBS News poll gave Carson a 26 to 22 percent lead within the margin of error. But what people are only telling you in passing, and mind you, this is not a national poll of everybody. It's a poll of Republican voters. But what they're not telling you is that 70 percent of the Republicans haven't made up their mind yet. They don't know who they're going to vote for. They got no clue. That may be because... With Donald Trump sucking up all the air in the room, they have no clue what everybody else is all about. That's where a John Kasich or a Carly Fiorina or some of these other people might have a puncher's chance. If it turns out that the Republican vote population, and by the way, not all Republican voters are rabid evangelicals or even rabid conservatives. They're not. But they're, and see what what these evangelicals and conservatives are upset about is not just the Democrats. I mean, they can't stand Obama. Half, uh, well, I won't say half, maybe a quarter of them still think he's a Muslim. 
they're mad with the Republican establishment for being too nice to Obama. Now, I don't know where they get this from. I was with some people earlier today, and one of the major topics of conversation was about how Obama has never, since the day he was inaugurated, managed to, and it's not about catching a break, it is ill-treatment, maltreatment. And I'm not going to go over all of the manifestations of that, but suffice to say, Barack Obama has been, as far as I know, as maligned as any president in my lifetime. Any president. And he's managed to get elected twice. And he has presided over the writing of the American economic ship, even though there's a lot that still needs to be done. But remember, Barack Obama got handed an unemployment rate of close to 10%. Out of the gate in 2009, 10%. It's down right around five now. He's cut that in half if you want to give him credit for it. You've been to the gas station lately? Remember when people were calling for Obama's head when the gas prices were up around $3 a gallon? Well, now they're down to two, in some cases lower than that. Anybody give him credit for Of course not. And trust me, nobody's going to give him credit at this debate tonight. As far as the Republicans who are going to be up on that stage, because Barack Obama's the Antichrist. But my guess is they're going to spend some time on Obama, but they're going to spend most of the time on each other. Fight, fight, fight. And within the next couple of months, maybe before Christmas, maybe before the end of the year, at least two more of them, probably the two that are sitting up in the in the kids' table debating, they're going to drop out because they can't handle it. And a large reason why they can't handle it is financial. They just don't have the money. And, you know, unless they manage to convince the Koch brothers that they're the next big thing, it's not going to happen. So I mentioned earlier that the Republicans are scrambling to get this budget deal done. Uh, And this is being done, by the way, during John Boehner's final days as Speaker of the House of Representatives. And his allies are trying to secure the votes to pass this budget deal, which, by the way, would put off any future budget fights until after the new president is inaugurated in early 2017. No government shutdown, no wolf tickets, whatever. What's interesting, uh, and, uh, you know, it's really funny to see that uh, Paul Ryan has been formally nominated to be Speaker of the House, although he doesn't have the 218 votes he actually needs, apparently, but he's now the presumptive Speaker of the House. Today, he backed the proposal. Yesterday, he said the process behind creating the proposal stinks. (laughs) So, I don't know. I don't know how you reconcile that. I guess maybe you just say, well, you know, I was talking about the process. I'm not talking about the final deal, blah, 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 blah. Um, there's an awful lot of people jumping ship on this, though. A lot of Republicans jumping ship. Uh, Rand Paul says when it gets to the Senate, he's going to filibuster. He wants to delay the final passage. Now, he knows that filibustering alone is not going to not going to stop this thing from happening. However, uh, you know, uh, he is well well aware of what this can do. His jumping up and wolfing. What it will do is allow the Freedom Caucus in the House to marshal their forces to push back against this deal. I don't think they have the strength, but they may try it anyway. We have a phone call. Pam from Ohio is calling us at 888-874-4888. Pam, welcome in. How are you doing this evening? 
I'm doing good. Uh, some uh, people were saying call in and they wanted to call about the girl that was body slammed by Ben Fields, but that's not what you're talking about, is it? Okay, you can talk about that. Well, a lot, you know, the fact that it turned into an immediate racial thing where the skin color of the white cop and the skin color of the black child, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty disturbing. I mean, it's, it's making a lot of white police officers not want to respond. Um, because why, uh, why fact, do you think that is? Why do you think they don't want to respond? I mean, are, are well, people trying to posit the notion that the only way a cop can respond is is with that? Well, I mean, it wouldn't have if it had been a black officer probably responding. Maybe that would have been a better outcome. Maybe each school, if they're going to have these officers in the school, maybe they should have a non-white police officer that responds to the black children and a white police officer, just so that. You know, there's no, there's, there'll be no question of racial bias. Well, see, and here's the thing. I don't believe they should have black officers responding to black kids and white officers responding. I think they ought to have competent officers responding to all kids. And this was an act of incompetence when you start. It was a, well, let me ask you a okay, question, Pam. You when, got kids? Uh, yeah, and you know what? When, when do children have to comply at one point, do do children not get to rule you and rule the classroom? When, no, no, that's not what I'm children about to have ask to you. comply. I'm, I'm about to ask you this: What do you think would happen to you? Yeah. If somebody videotaped you grabbing your child, throwing your child to the floor, and dragging him or her across the floor, what do you think would happen to you? What would happen to me if I had done that to another child? No, to your child. Um, well, it had been done to my child, and you know what I did? Every single time no, no, I looked no, to the... No, no, I'm not talking about having it done to your child. I'm uh -huh. asking you what would happen to you if you had done that to your child. I, I think it all depends on skin color, doesn't it? I mean, according to the media... You would be locked up is what would happen. Child Protective Services would be called. I do have children, and I reported my ex-husband several times to the, to the abuse that my son suffered when in the hands of him, and CPS did not protect my child. Uh, so CPS is not always there. What, what, I, what we're confused about is every time a police officer, why is it we only see the videos of white cop on black? I mean, we, we know I know from experience as a white citizen that white children are suffer the same kind of things as this this poor black child did, but it's just that we never see that in the well, media. Well, maybe people didn't pull out the video. They, these kids, and this is a, or, or a, the an media, ironic situation. The media was supposedly being disciplined for having and using a cell phone, but somebody else had a cell phone because they, they videotaped it. They, well, they took it phone. out afterwards. They took it out afterwards. First of well, all, yeah, no. but they weren't supposed to have it in the class. And, well, why is it, though, that when this child was asked, she, she disobeyed two adults. The two adults that were there didn't seem to be able to get this child under control. And then they wait to, for the officer to show up. Now, see, what I'm saying is, you know, we know that this happens. The, the thing for most Americans, especially white America, which we know that this happens to white children, but we, it seems like the media... So why, why haven't white people done anything about it? Well, the media doesn't... It, they cover those... those it's jobs. not on the media. It's not on the media. The media doesn't sure, have to cover it. It was all over the Internet. Yeah. It was all over the Internet. Well, that, I mean, that, that's how things go viral. But and, the bottom and, line is, well, if it was done to a white child and it went viral, they immediately don't think there'd be a similar response? Okay, sir, do you think if the, if the skin color of the officer was black, it would still get the same notice? Yep. Oh, we don't know. Absolutely. We know it wouldn't. Sir, we've got and video. Sir, I wouldn't we care if the cop was sky blue green. If you grab a kid, sir, we know different that, than that child over. Did you see what uh, that child was in grave danger of landing on her head? Well, she punched the officer. Yeah, it doesn't matter. The guy's 300 sir, uh, well, pounds, and she's a 16-year-old kid. Let me kid. ask you this, sir. When we've got black lives matter, her by her hair and, when and we've got black lives her, matter, was not an appropriate got, response. Even well, the cop, it, even the police chief down there said hey, that. Sir, sir, is it appropriate response for black lives matter to be marching the streets saying pigs this in a blanket? This isn't about black, black lives matter. Sir, it is. It's not about black lives matter. Black lives matter hasn't responded to this. Why are you bringing yeah. Black Lives Matter into it? 
Are you serious? The NAACP has had a conference. Uh, they got the FBI in, involved. The NAACP the is involved. not Black Lives Matter. Sir, they never, ever, sir, this is all about the skin color of the police officer, like it was in Michael Brown, uh, Eric Garner. It's never about just that a police officer, why was a police officer called in the first place? Why well, wasn't the teacher and the question beyond the question of skin color? Sir, why sir, was you know the what? officer? We're calling, you know what? Sir, we're mainly calling. We're mainly calling because officer we're is supposed hey, to sir, be properly sir. trained. Sir, and this uh, what, you know what? Hey, sir, did not when, are, when are when are children going to be properly trained that they have to obey the rules equally to every other person? When is that? Go- when is personal responsibility going to be taught I, to the I children? I agree with you 100, but that does when? not justify a 300 pound cop grabbing a child. And dragging her across the floor. That doesn't sir, justify sir. it. You know what, sir? You know what? You know what? The only reason that I was asked to call, first of all, they said that you were going to be talking about the subject. It's the racial dynamic that the media brings immediately, racially profiling the racial every white cop. did not racist. come from the media. And, you know, this, this poor girl, we're finding out she's an orphan. She doesn't have her grandparents. But, you know, for white America... We're getting to the point where we're saying, why should our white sons sign up to join the, uh, the police force if this white cop, Ben Fields, would have chosen Because it's to... a good job. That's why. That's why it's white cops sign up all over white. America. Not if you're white, white male. White cops not so, turning so not away from the police. Trust me on that. i got to go because we're sure. almost out of time. But thank you very much for calling. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, this whole white, white American kids not signing up to be cops because they can't brutalize black people, that's absurd. That's absurd. Abso-freaking-lutely absurd. And this was an act of brutality. You can argue that she punched back, maybe. You know what? Cop grabs me. Under those circumstances, I might resist. That doesn't justify what the cop did. As far as kids taking personal responsibility, I'm all for it. Still does not justify what happened here. Period. Anyway, again, Pam from Ohio, thank you very much for. I don't know who who she said that somebody told her to call. So I don't know who it was, but uh, thanks a lot for that. I appreciate it. Um, here's the last story we're going to get to because we only got a couple minutes left. I talked about the fact that the pay gap between what CEOs make and what workers make is pretty much a given. Most people know that while the CEO and the workers are working. But now it's a matter of retirement. And, and here's the most interesting thing about this story, all right, because I can get into it. Young Brands, do you all know who Young Brands are? They own Taco Bell, KFC, and Pizza Hut. The current executive chair has the biggest nest egg of all CEOs examined at $234 million, which guarantees him a monthly check of $1.3 million when he retires. That's monthly, not yearly, monthly. The average young brand employee has $70,000 stashed away, which amounts to about $395 a month in retirement. Not only that, and this is the interesting thing, employees, workers, have been pushed wholesale into 401k accounts. You think CEO. CEOs are pushed into 401k accounts? Uh, no. In fact, the defined benefit pensions that everybody screams and hollers about that we have to move away from that. Why? Nobody can come up with a good explanation. But the fact of the matter, the plain fact of the matter, is that CEOs overwhelmingly get defined benefit pensions. 18% of workers in the private sector were given a defined benefit pension. That's fallen from 35%. On the other hand, CEOs, half the CEOs of the country's largest companies get a defined benefit pension. Half. 18% for workers, half for CEOs. That's what you got to look forward to when it comes to retirement. Anyway, it's about time for me to get out of here. My thanks. I, I hope I didn't get overly passionate or overly upset with that woman. But, hey, you know, it is what it is. We'll be back next week, Wednesday, 6 p.m., God willing, and the creek don't rise. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld and all the good people at the Progressive Radio Network. Keep listening for all the fine programming on this network. For the Mark Riley Show, my name is Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great rest of the evening. 
and a better week ahead.